Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. We need to talk about rents. It's probably the single most important subject that we can talk about. Why? Why is it, why is it the single most important subject? Well, when we were doing at PSW, I think it was Jay Martin that made a great point. When we were doing the sensitivity analysis for cap rates, rents, a few different items, Rents by far have the biggest impact, right, on our returns. Oh, by far, by far. In fact, one of the investors in the uh, South Mountain deal emailed me. I don't know if you remember. He emailed me and he asked me to run a sensitivity analysis, which incorporated three elements. One, he wanted me to discount rents by $100 across the board for repositioned, renovated rents. Two, he wanted me to inflate the refinance interest rate by a half a percent. And three, he wanted me to inflate the cap rate for the exit by half a percent. So that basically ended up at six and a half, a little over six and a half cap. Well, I did it in stages. So first I inflated the cap rate. And of course we underwrite to the IRR and we'll be talking about this a lot as to why, but that made a very insignificant difference. Like it took it down from like 14 and a half to like 14.1% IR, something, something silly, something insignificant. Then you do the interest rate. And again, you know, it'll take it down to like 13 or 12 and a half percent IR. Well, the last step is to discount rents. Well, that sucker took it down to like an eight and a half percent IRR on a deal that started at like somewhere around 14.5% on a 10-year hold, it took it down to, uh, and the reason, by the way, we do a 10-year hold is not because we want to be in the deal for 10 years. It's because we need to show ourselves and our investors what we think is a worst-case scenario, which is where if we have to hold to the bottom of the cycle and send the, uh, sell on the back end, and it takes 10 years, uh, if we have to stay in the deal that long, what's that going to do to our investment return? Well, as it happens, that particular investor ended up putting in a lot of money because a sophisticated investor knows that 8.5% IRR is nothing to laugh at. It's very difficult to achieve an 8.5% IRR. And that IRR represented completely blown up deep. Like everything you could possibly imagine going wrong went wrong. And it's still penciled to an 8.5% IRR or thereabout. So... That's how investors think about it, but that's how much of an impact, Sam, you're right, that's how much of an impact rents have on the validity of an investment opportunity. There's, there's liberal arts ways to put that, but maybe, you know, we'll keep coming back to rents, you know, when we're on episode 115, we're still going to be talking about rent because there's hardly anything more important in what we do than understanding your rents, what they're going to be, how they're going to be, and why they're going to be, right? So, 
Okay, so I've done a lot of presentations. I did it at PSW. PSW is Phoenix Syndication Workshop. Sam and I host this Phoenix Syndication Workshop once a year. And it's a two-day event. And we spend like, you know, gajillion hours on underwriting, like literally going through spreadsheets, line item by line item. Well, we had one uh, in January. This January, there's going to be another one next January. We only do it once a month, no, once a year. And uh, I spent time doing that. I also did an expanded version of the presentation for another um, uh, speaking engagement that I did. So what I'm going to do right now, and you guys jump in uh, whenever necessary, but I, I, I kind of boil down the process Sam and I go through to kind of the lowest common denominator in layman's terms, digestible kind of, here's what we look at. So I'm going to try my best to walk you guys through all of the moving parts in what we look at relative to the reds. Uh, if you guys think that folks might have questions as I'm talking, please jump in, pretend you are a listener and ask me questions and let's have a convo about it. Okay. Are you saying you're going to be scripted right now? Um, <laughs> I, a little bit, a little bit because it's important. I don't want to miss anything. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's just like, see, um, you and I, uh, have worked very hard on our underwriting models. We don't sell those. Why do we not sell those? Because they're so specific and you have to know what you are doing. Otherwise, I don't want to be responsible for somebody making a buy decision by hitting the wrong sell or the wrong button or something, you yeah. know? So rents is just kind of like that. I want to make sure I don't miss anything. I don't want to, you know, and, and this is high level. We're, we're, we're 10,000 feet in the air, just like a bird's eye view on the process. But still, being what it is, I still don't want to miss anything. So with that said, we talked about uh, multifamily syndication being a flip. I, I would take it a step further. I would say multifamily is a flip period, because I don't know that you underwrite multifamily syndication in any way that's different from, you know, just a multifamily period. Uh, I, once you understand the dynamics and you understand where the money is and how you make the money, I don't know how you put that genie in the, bo in the bottle, you know. Um, so multifamily is a, is a kind of a, a slow flip proposition. Why? Because we need the equity growth. Why? Because it represents safety. It engineers returns relative to IRR. And when we, when we talk about the IRR, we'll dig deeper into this, and you guys will understand why a little more. It creates exits, okay? Mm -hmm. Equity is what creates exits. Well, I want to take you back to the Greek times and introduce you. Many of you may not know this word. It's called syllogism. I've written about it. I'm fascinated by Socrates, Aristotle, all those Greeks, they're, they're just, you know, as far as thinking processes, this is what kind of the art of persuasion, uh, which we now coin negotiation, uh, which I kind of don't like the word negotiation because it presumes outsmarting somebody. Persuasion is probably more appropriate. It involves people following you, your line of thought, and therefore leading you to your objective, the art of persuasion. Well, Syllogism is a three-part technical uh, structure to an argument. And it goes kind of like this. It's an if-then argument. 
it's it's basically like the spreadsheets that we that we do. We say what happens if, and then we provide the answer. Then, so if we only buy a value add because value add creates equity, and if value add is a function of improving the income, then we can only buy property if we can improve the income. This is, this is, this is a very, very important concept. When folks look at income producing property, folks focus on the income. And if you do that, then you simply capitalize a value. It's, it's what we talked about last time. What, what value add investors do is they realize income has a function to play. But what it is, is to tee up the equity. That's what the income does. So the syllogism is this structure of an argument that is comprised of major premise, minor premise, and a logical conclusion, logos. So the major premise is we only buy value add. The minor premise is in multifamily, value add is a function of improving the income, then the logical conclusion is we only buy a property if we can improve the income. Well, I know it's very, very sexy and very, very popular for people to talk about, you know, income is a function of two parts. You have income over here, you have expenses over here. So you can increase the income and you can lower the expenses. The reality is that expenses over a long period of time, we know what they're gonna cost because it costs what it costs to run property. You're not going to outsmart the national averages and the local averages as it relates to expenses. So Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have yet to see a deal that we can underwrite whereby our projected stabilized expenses would be less than either the sellers or the pro forma. I think that's true. Yeah. Our expenses always end up higher because we're trying to be realistic about what they're going to be on an ongoing basis for a prolonged period of time. So our expenses are always higher. So, so that, that notion that you can lower expenses, yes, there are unique situations. Yes, it's, it's never black and white. But for the most part, if you're going to be logical, you're going to be reasonable about how much stuff costs to run, and you're going to underwrite to averages because you're not any better than the other guy, by and large, then this notion that you can create more NOI by lowering expenses is a myth. You are you are likely not going to be able to do it. And even if you prove to be able to do it, it's silly to underwrite it. You have to underwrite kind of more realistic baselines. So with expenses being off the table, if you agree with me that, you know, let's, let's be very conservative, let's take expenses off the table, then what you have is this necessity, an absolute necessity. If you subscribe to my syllogism, then you have this absolute necessity uh, the, the, to, to improve the rental revenue, to improve the, the gross collections, one way or the other, whichever way you want to do it. So let's break that down. What does that look like? What does is, what is 
encompassed in underwriting this whole big picture rent thing, quote unquote rent, okay, or income, if you want. So I've identified four baselines for evaluating rents. One, schedule of rent. Two, the rent roll. Three, the classic market. And four, the renovated market. Underwriting all four of these will expose the viability of an acquisition by showing you whether or not there is value add. And of course, we don't buy if there's no value add, right? If you subscribe to my syllogism, which is very logical, we need the equity. The equity lies through the increased income because it's capitalized value. Therefore, we don't buy anything where we can't increase the income. And how do we determine if we can? Four baselines, schedule of rent, the rent roll, the classic market, and the renovated market. So the schedule of rent, what is it? This is a stated schedule of asking rents at any given time. So you walk into, you, you open up a, 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 a website of an apartment complex and you look and see and they tell you a, a one bedroom, one bath rents for XYZ. You walk into the door in the, in the rental office, leasing office, and they tell you this is how much you're renting. This isn't necessarily how much they're getting. It's just what they're asking rent is. It's, it's their, their matrix of rents. Every professionally managed apartment complex will have a certain set matrix of rents. Okay? That's the schedule of rents. Number two baseline we are underwriting is the rent roll. Now, the rent roll is the periodic rent roll at any given time. The difference between the schedule of rents, which was the, the first thing I talked about, and the rent roll is that while the rent roll reflects what is actually being achieved on the rents, the schedule is just to ask. So I can ask $800, but if I'm getting $725, it doesn't matter what I ask. So there's, there's going to be a wide potential discrepancy between the ask and what's actually on the rent roll. Now, if the actual rents being collected are lower than the ask, then you have what is called loss to lease, or sometimes it's called loss to old lease, and it's abbreviated LTL. And it's a line item in the underwriting. So that kind of tees up the first delta that we would look at. Presuming we agree with their ask, we agree that they should be able to get 800, but we're looking at the rent roll and seeing that they're only getting 725 rent, then what we have is $75 of upside on that particular unit. Let's move on from here because we'll put it all together. The next baseline is classic market. Their classic market is what? Their in-place classic market is their ask. It's their schedule of rents. This is what they feel their apartments are worth. But does that have to be correct? Does that have to be our classic market? Maybe we do a market study and we realize that $800 for that unit is too much. 
Or maybe we do a market study and we realize that $800 is too low. It's not enough. So the classic market to the schedule of rent represents another loss to lease. It could be a positive number. In other words, if your assessment of what that classic market, meaning you haven't touched the unit, you haven't fixed the unit, you are not making any improvements, just as it sits. If you think you can get more than 800, then guess what? There's an additional loss to lease. So let's say we think classic market in as-is condition can be $850. Well, then we have $75 of LTL built into the rent roll in the fact that they're getting seven and a quarter and they're asking 800. But we think we can ask 850. So now we have $125 of cumulative loss to lease on a classic condition unit. Does that make sense? I'm hoping that makes sense. So then the next step from here is, of course, the renovated market. And that's essentially us saying, hey, but what if we take this unit and we renovate it? We put in new cabinets. We put in granite countertops with underhung sinks, with new stainless steel appliances, with new fixtures, with new flooring, new paint, whatever. What will we be able to get for that apartment in that condition? That becomes our renovated market. And let's just say that we do our study and we realize that while the classic apartment will be able to rent for $850, once we renovate it, it'll be able to rent for $975. Well, there's your additional loss to lease. Now, this tees up a whole lot of conversations because depending on how much money you have to spend relative to the rent bumps you will get, maybe the capitalization rate is, makes it so that it's worth it to spend the money. Maybe it makes it so it's not worth it to spend the money. And so there's, there's, just, there's, there's a lot of rationale that still has to go into this equation. But I want you to picture, just, just as a baseline, I want you to picture an axis, a horizontal axis. And I want you to start on all the way to the left. And this is your rent roll. This is hopefully, this is what a deal, by the way, looks like. A deal which is something that has a lot of value add, this is what it looks like. So the rent roll is all the way over on the right, uh, left side. The schedule of rents, the current in-place schedule of rents, is the next degree over. Our classic market, meaning what we think we can get for those as-is condition units, is further to the right. And then all the way to the right is the renovated market. So if you have an opportunity where all of these things line up the right way with enough spacing between them, enough delta, then you have a deal. Because by increasing, by capturing the loss to lease represented by all of this, you will improve the value of the building. So the next guy that's looking at this building when you're selling, 
he is capitalizing the net operating income. And that value, of course, comes to a much larger amount than what it did before you did what you needed to do. Okay? So that's kind of the basic outline, the very basic bird's eye view on what we look at with rents. And now I'll go ahead and invite Sam Scott into this conversation and we'll just talk through it to more detail uh, with whatever these guys want to add. First of all, does that make sense? Just the way I just described the basic process. Yeah. And I, and I think a good point for the rent roll and schedule of rents, if you're de uh, dealing with a sophisticated seller and they have good reporting, those are usually going to be on the same schedule. So when you're underwriting, they'll, they'll have the schedule of rents, what they could get and what they're actually locked in at. And you can see they're in place lost to lease. Um, I think the thing we need to discuss, I think, I think anybody listening to this would have a very logical question. Well, if there's so much meat on that bone, how come the current owner isn't doing something about it? How come they're not raising their rents? How come X, Y, Z? How come X, Y, Z? How come, you know, those are the questions I feel from people all the time. Those are the questions probably folks listening to this show would have. So let's spend a few minutes uh, illuminating the fact that in every cycle, there's a seller. In every cycle, there's a buyer those seller and buyer look very different in every kind of real estate cycle. So let's talk through those dynamics because our sellers right now look very different from when we become sellers because we'll be selling to a different market to a different kind of buyer. So let's, let's outline those dynamics, explain those dynamics and, and, and make it so that it's, it's easily understandable. Why? would somebody leave us so much meat on the boat? Well, I, I, think think was, <laughs> I think that was one of the most important things, Ben, when we were talking before is you have to know your end buyer in mind, right? We're, we're right. going to be selling to a doctor or a lawyer or something that's stabilized asset wants a good return, you know, not necessarily the stock market, but I think one of the most, you know, overlooked thing is what type of buyer is that currently you're trying to piece together a puzzle that you might not have all the pieces to okay does he have the amount of capital did he refinance at the wrong time and he's he's really tight you know paying back that bank debt and you know putting that seven to eight grand per unit to get that market bump might not necessarily be in his cars right now well and it, it has to do with when they bought um if i if they're making yeah. And, and they're buying, if they buy at the low of the market and they're already going to make six times their money when they sell to us, how much incentive is there for them to get seven times their money? It, it always makes me laugh. Like whenever I post something on bigger pockets and people accuse me of buying from unsophisticated sellers, I'm buying from a guy who purchased in 2013 who knew enough about real estate cycles to know that he needed to do absolutely nothing. He just needed to stabilize this thing and to drag it by its, you know, tail, drag it along, drag it along until when? Until the market capitalization rates compressed and somebody would come along and offer him a price based on the lower cap rate. But he was also sophisticated enough to know that 
you know, his buyer is going to be buying a pig, a fixable pig, but a pig. So he needed to leave his buyer enough meat on the bone for his buyer to want to put in the work to build a beautiful candy out of it. So this is a very sophisticated player who bought in 2012, 2013, 2014, when everybody else was running away, he had a presence in mind to come in. He had, frankly, the cojones to come in and spend millions of dollars to buy this asset at a very high cap rate because nobody else was buying and because the financing was hard to come by. So he bought it. And he knew he didn't need to remodel units and he knew he didn't have to do any of that stuff. He, needed, he didn't need to hike rents. He just needed to stabilize it just enough and leave me all the meat on the bone. So now I'm coming in and paying him four and a half cap. And now for the building that he bought in 35, for, for $35,000 or $40,000 a unit, I'm paying eighty-five, ninety-five thousand dollars $95,000 a unit. Why would he put more money at risk when he is already doubling or tripling his money? Why would he go and do the remodels and try to prove that he can get more rents for that? Why? He's already, his whole entire business plan was a very sophisticated game of cap rate compression. All he needed to do was get this thing, stabilize it enough so it doesn't cost him money. He didn't need to make money on it. That wasn't his point. He knew he was going to make millions when he sells. He didn't care about cash flow, by and large. And now he's selling to me. And the only reason he's selling to me is because while I'm paying four and a half cap, by the time it's fully repositioned, I'll be at eight and a half cap. So that's the only reason it works for me as a buyer. But that paints you the picture of a different seller, a different buyer, because we, we, we operate in cycles. And people need to understand that this game is very, it's not static. It's very elastic. Players change relative to the cycle you're in. Hmm. And I, one of the questions I hear just talking with my CPA the other day is, is as long as you have a higher and better use for that capital, right? If he's still playing in that market and he's going to be trading at that cap rate and putting it into another property, I think you have to answer that question too. Do we hold, you know, and again, if, if he's not necessarily syndicating or he doesn't have to sell, he's got to answer that question himself. Right. But absolutely. But, but that's why these deals still exist guys. That's why we can still find $300 a door of value add. That's exactly why. Well, and, and people are willing to pay a lower cap rate for that income if there's meat left on the bone. And so if I'm going to have, if, how much am I really adding if I have to sell at a five and a half cap instead of a four and a half cap? So you're hurting your previous income. So, right. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. All right, Ben, want to take us out? We'll jump into the next episode. Sounds good. You guys, I think this show is called Multifamily Syndication Unscripted. My name is Ben Labovich. I'm here with Scott Hollister and Sam. We call, we call him lovingly. We call him Samuel. Samuel Grooms. Um, and for Samuel Grooms and Scott Hollister, good day to you all. 
and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this and found it a bit entertaining. See you next time, Benjamin. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted. All right, Brent, you're queued up for your 30-minute uh, presentation. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> What show is this? I don't know. Uh, We're doing uh, something to do with real estate, I think. <laughs> no, <laughs> real estate. The, the real estate syndication unscripted. Multifamily syndication unscripted. Well, sh- I mean, I was gonna say a bad word, but this is a family appropriate show, so I caught myself right in time. So, Scott, you should be so proud and happy right now. <laughs> I'm behaving myself. The teacher in me is just jumping for joy.